0: Foundation movie podcast. I'm your host, Titus. And today in my critic series, I am joined by a new interlocutor, Chris Ruffo, activist extraordinaire, Mr. Conservative in America right now, uh, the very model of a successful young man. Chris, somebody I admire, and I've had the chance to express my admiration publicly. I think there's not enough of that. Uh, Success should be uh, applauded for what it is, and we, we should have a kind of frankness about what it means to achieve things in politics. And uh, also, I thought, since Chris now has a new book and everybody wants to know Chris's uh, opinion, since I come from film criticism, I thought, what what kind of political movies does Chris watch? And so when we're, we're talking recently, you've said, Chris, that Hal Ashby's being there is one of the political movies you really like, among your favorites. And it had been a long time since I had seen or talked about it. It was the sort of stuff we talked about in grad school as satires of American politics. And I thought, wow, this takes me back a a while. And so it was a great opportunity for me to watch it again and to think about it. The the, the first thing that struck me when you said it, it was... It is a very gerontocratic country nowadays. It is this weird, weird zombified politics that we're dealing with. And we will have to pretend it's real because we see it on TV. But this could be a good conversation. It might be the moment to talk about being there. So thank you very much for suggesting this, Chris, and for joining me on the podcast. Now, first, uh, please introduce yourself to our audience. And uh, let's get to the movie after.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it's great. It's great to be here and uh, doing something a little bit different, talking about film. You know, I'm a a writer, journalist, author, activist, been heavily uh, involved in conservative politics in recent years, but my background is in documentary film production. So uh, while I was never a fiction filmmaker, uh, I do have a kind of rudimentary knowledge of how cinema works, how editing works, how character development and and narrative structure works. And so as I've migrated away from doing documentaries, uh, this was a great opportunity to actually watch being there again. Uh, Like you, it was a film that I first came to admire, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. But when I watched it, it really holds up. Uh, It really still communicates something that I think is maybe even more relevant today. And if you think of our politics under the Biden administration, it captures a lot of that process, whether it's innocence and cynicism manipulation having a, a projection onto a political figure who's running the actual politics behind the scenes and then of course these great existential themes that i hope we have a chance to get into
0: yes indeed there's a political satire to the movie but there is also something deeper than that about the anxieties not just of the 70s but as with many 70s things they're happening again it's a uh... Uh, last year, especially more and more, I thought about 70s things that are coming back in the uh, energy or economics, inflation or so- so social breakdown in cities, or all sorts of things of that character. And I think it's underappreciated. It would be good to know that the 70s happened. It might somehow make us realize that America's had these problems before. They're not the same problems, but the similarity is uh, unnerving. And possibly uh, cinema is also a resource for this. There were people worried about this stuff at the time, some of them interesting artists. Hal Ashby was one of them, the director. It's So uh, it's worth looking back even for the sake of figuring out why why these things seem to be happening again. Now, uh, being there is a, a very simple story that proved to be quite successful. This was something of a hit in 79 when it came out. And then in 1980 at the Oscars, it had two nominations, Peter Sellers, the leading man, but also Melvin Douglas, who was very, very old, one of my favorite stars from the Hollywood, from old Hollywood, from the 30s and 40s. And this was the finale of his career, and he won the Oscar for this again. And, of course, the the, the third major character is played by Shirley MacLaine. So it it was an odd combination of satire, a long two-hour drama, and prestigious cast, remarkably talented actors to trying to sell you the story of an innocent man finding himself in the D.C. of the '70s, and by a series of accidents, Peter Sellers ends up in you know in the mouth of the president, quoted on national TV, involved with important businessmen of America and uh, their financial dealings, and then assumes some some kind of spiritual role as well. So it's it's a hilarious story. It's a, what the hell is happening here? Peter Seller is dead pants, this guy, who I think nowadays would be called autistic. He's, but he's he's a shut-in who does gardening and who saw America only on TV. And that's what he does. He watches TV all the time up until he's kicked out of the house because the property is being shut down. Whoever owned it is dead. And that's where his series of accidents starts that leads him to meet the Rand family, Presumably, it's not an accidental name. Uh, There's the Rand Corporation, there's Ayn Rand. These are somehow right-wing business libertarian things. The Rand family are very powerful financial figures, kingmakers. Melvin Douglas is the old Rand, and his wife is the younger Shirley MacLaine. And it's her limo that accidentally runs him over, or rather just runs over his foot. And they uh, want to help him out. She's a nice lady, but also they're worried that maybe there could be liabilities for the accident. So they try to make the best of it and take him in for a couple of days while he's, while the doctors are looking over his medical issue, his contusion, contusions on his foot. And that leads to Chance the Gardener meeting the uh, wealthy man himself, Ben Rand, who strangely is the first character to, so to speak, fall in love with him. He's charmed by the simplicity, the innocence, the straightforwardness, the the fact that Chance doesn't seem to want anything in the world, and he doesn't seem to have uh, any trouble in the world, strangely enough. And this is what sets up Chance as a a, a gnomic, wise man, a guy who seems to be offering political slogans. Soon they end up in a presidential speech, then he ends up on TV doing late-night shows. And uh, now America is charmed by this uh, effortless sloganeering. Since he's innocent, he sells it off. But at the same time, he's absolutely responsible. He has no idea what the consequences are of him saying these things. And uh, they become involved in the political drama of a bad economy. And the president trying to tell people that, you know, the economy, like nature, has its seasons. And now it's fall and winter. But later, will come spring and summer, there will be growth again. Of the union is strong, that sort of speech, and so that's the uh, that's the whole comedy of it. And the more implausible it becomes, the more revealing it becomes about Washington D.C., about certain aspects of America, because uh, chance, of course, is a perfect foil. Peter Sellers' slightly idiotic uh, deadpan is a, is a very good way for revealing all of these other people in in the news, in the uh, White House, uh, in business, and so on trying to make sense of him, trying to figure out what's happening, figuring out all the angles and what might be in it for them or what the dangers might be. So uh, inevitably, the deep, deep state is brought into it, and all of a sudden we're talking about, is the CIA burning files on this guy? Why, the, don't, why doesn't he have a past? Where is the FBI burning files? They're denying it, so obviously it means they did it. So, so you know, the satire <laughs> continues. But I think that should suffice by way of a synopsis. Let's maybe uh, get back to you. What what are your thoughts on the movie? How come you like it so much?
1: I love the the deadpan humor. I love Peter Sellers, and I think what 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 I liked most about the movie, back when I first watched it, and then uh, really spoke to me again, was just this idea of the the perfectly innocent man. It's this it's this spin on the. The Great American, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. This is Mr. Smith without any moral pretension, without any uh, real intelligence, without any past uh, who's mediated his whole experience through television. I mean, he's he's this perfect blank slate. And so you get this panorama. And then there's these great little scenes like uh, where he's wandering down the street aimlessly and he gets surrounded by a group of black hoodlums uh, who you know pull a knife on him and say you know listen you better tell Raphael that I that I'm, I'm, I better get my money uh, and he just effortlessly dances around all of these dangers and then there's that great scene at the funeral at the end the patriarch of the kind of uh, the kingmaker has died and then they're bringing the casket up um, to this uh, this amazing uh, uh, pyramid uh, with the all-seeing eye this masonic conspiracy uh, and then they say you know he might be our perfect man for the presidency, someone we can manipulate, someone that has no past, someone that seemingly uh, has captured the spirit of America by saying nothing at all, uh, someone who knows television, um, and, but but we are this, the, the shadowy cabal of people uh, behind the scenes. And so it captures this great 1970s cynicism. This is in the wake of of Richard Nixon, of course, someone whom I admire greatly, but still there is this... This beautiful thing, and I, I didn't understand this at the time, but now that I've read a little bit more deeply, the title, Being There, is of course Heidegger's Dasein. Uh, uh, and that's something I didn't know uh, as a very young person, but then having read a little bit of Heidegger, I I I I could I could understand it perfectly. You know, he is the being in the world in this really dark and humorous sense. And so I think that it's a The second time watching it, I understood the philosophical overtones, uh, which to me just made it even more gripping, arresting, delightful, and provocative. Yeah, I think
0: it's a very important thing because it connects the satire with why do we care about this movie? In a way, it feels good to watch this and feel superior to the various cynical operators in Washington, D.C. We get to look down on journalists from the Washington Post or Political soirees with ambassadors, uh, any number of these things. It's it's good for once for uh, to feel superior to the important movers and shakers, and it corresponds somehow to the to the fact that we want to understand what's happening there. Running Washington doesn't mean you understand it. Power doesn't mean wisdom. To speak more philosophically, after all, there are always movers and shakers in Washington, and often enough, they get things badly wrong. Not, not in the sense, perhaps, that people are held accountable, but careers are destroyed and the country does suffer. It's the, the movie encourages, in this satiric mood, our concern for justice, to understand that there's something really wrong in the way things run, and we should think about why. Why do we feel this way? Why isn't it just a spectacle, but in feeling that we know better that these people are, in a way, intellectually corrupt, not just morally corrupt, maybe we sh- we have some kind of political duties that stem from that Uh, it's some like all satire it encourages us to an extent to try to hold people to account to hold proud successful people the movers and shakers try to hold them to account and part of that also of course means removing the glamour of power and uh, making them look like suckers for a loser for an innocent is is a very good way of showing that, that There is something diminished in these people. They're nowhere near as serious as they think they are. And, of course, gradually people reveal about themselves that they don't really like writing, that the book, political books are written. that they don't read the papers. They are not, in fact, interested in knowing what's going on. They're only interested in the angles. Uh, being involved in the politics, in a way, forces this cynicism on you because there's always something happening, so there's always something to fear or there's always an opportunity. And, uh, and, and so you end up very narrowly obsessed on things that are at the same time ephemeral. The things that exercised people's passions five years ago don't exist anymore. But those people still exist. What kind of existence is that? Hence this deeper sense of, the, of, of being that the movie is concerned with. The hollowness of political cynicism that's best revealed by political innocence, as with chance, because he's because he's not aware of what kind of people these are. He's he's not aware that such people can exist. In fact, no. uh, it, it also is just a weird uh, similarity between them that they think they know life, but they might know much more about life than he does, and he knows precious little, if anything. It's uh, so so indeed this deeper question of what does it mean to be human? To what extent? Are our lives run by the, the, the impersonal forces to which we're only reacting and trying to make the best of things? And to what extent are are we aware of deeper longings that actuate ultimately all our institutions, all our public speaking, all our sloganeering even? In, in, it's part of the success of the satire that shows that something as ridiculous as Peter Sellers on late night TV does suggest we are trying in some way to to figure out our fate as human beings. We're just not good at it. There is a, a kind of innocent attempt to figure out where we stand to a world that we used to think we controlled better. And then the 70s revealed that America is not in fact in control of things and Americans aren't in control of America. Country's not running and we fear maybe it's running into the ground at the same time.
1: I think there is that, but what, what I what I think that the how Ashby does so well is he also does not let it go into pure cynicism or nihilism. And ultimately all of these characters are treated at the in a certain sense sympathetically. And so you understand how ridiculous the ambassador is. You understand there's an anxious president who doesn't trust his own instincts, doesn't know what to do. You understand that there's scheming businessmen who just want to, you know, just want to speak. Um, you know, the 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 Rand patriarch. One thing I also noticed: it's the same character as the old man in The Big Lebowski. I mean, I think he was clearly modeled on on the the Ashby character. It's the same diction, the same verboseness, the same pontification, but a misunderstanding of the human because these people are obsessed with money. And yet at the end of the movie, you get a sense that all of these people are striving to understand, striving to achieve, striving to earn, striving to wield power. And despite the fact that everyone has some kind of scam except for chance, it, it is America. I mean, it is the country. It is human nature. It is how the world works chance is totally dependent he couldn't feed himself he couldn't clothe himself he couldn't uh, uh, support himself as the 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 african-american housekeeper says you know he says i raised that boy he couldn't do anything and so you see the world through his eyes through the eyes of innocence but you also understand that the cynical world is the world as it exists and he doesn't have this utopian gloss that says these people are evil chance you know uh, we, we need to have chance, uh, you know running the He knows that that's impossible. And so it's this beautiful interplay that Ashby that Ashby creates, where you invest uh, in chance, but you know that in that scene where you see chance walking down the street, he's clinging on to his television remote control. He sees himself in the uh, store window uh, where there's a television and a camera. He sees himself uh, in the television and he tries to turn it off. He tries to change the channel. He doesn't even know condition of his own existence. You you have to also know that to, to be politically mature is to accept, to a certain extent, corruption. And so so to me, there is thematically, there's so much happening in this film. You, you, you think about films in, in the recent period, the last, say, 10, 20 years. There are no other films that can approach this level. And uh, I, I, I think it's a, also a very European lens to see America very European. I mean, it's informed philosophically, it's informed as far as it's more like the death of Ivan Ilyich uh, uh, than it is like, you know, uh, any kind of, you know, American classical American cinema. And so I just thought that those are the things that I was watching and trying to unravel as, as, as the film was playing this, this last time. Yeah, and the writer, uh, screenwriter and the novelist
0: he adapted his own work is a, a Polish immigrant uh, or immigrant, uh, Jerzy Kosinski. So I think there is indeed a lot of the European aspect right there in uh, the man's uh, education and upbringing. I think that's true, what you said, that the, the price you pay for this sort of moral innocence you see in chance is absolute ignorance. This guy cannot get on in the world. And when you notice that, indeed, you realize that it's, it's impractical and from a point of from a certain point of view, it's inhuman. Too much innocence is bad for you because you're not you know his chance the gardener, but uh, you're not in the Garden of Eden where life is easy and you just pick fruit off trees with this proviso. It's in fact, life is hard. There's a lot of work. These people and their suffering is real. Indeed, the movie shows a certain combination of satire and affection. The former senator, now president, who is sort of distraught but pleased with uh, Chance the Gardener helping him out with these ideas, (laughs) he becomes sexually impotent. You know, he watches himself on TV, he watches Chance on TV. He's not sure are these things going well? Is this guy a challenge? This uh, causes his wife no amount of. Problems and suffering, but and, and that's obviously you know it's 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 humor of a certain kind and quite broad humor, but it also points out that jealousy in politics and all of these things are very human concerns. That these are not simply impersonal forces; they are ultimately caused by our own longings, our own desires that are that we're never going to be able to deal with very well you think we we should be able to manage better than in the 70s we should be able to manage better than we are now but uh and there's evidence right america has done better people have done better but for once it it is useful to sit and think about why does this old financier now that he's crippled by disease is he, finally trying to make a friend he's finally trying to or you could say that because weakness and disease are stopping him from being uh, even more successful and wealthier, he has a moment when he really and truly cares about this other guy. Chance's friendship with him is to an extent real, that is to an extent because Chance is not partic- is not a serious person, right? He's, he's not an adult. Uh, he's, he's, he's a child in an adult body, you could say. But there is something uh, that that is honest and deeply felt and the, the movie insists on how, in a way, Chance has learned something about life. He cares about the death of his friend. In a way, he did not at all about the care, care about the guy in whose house he lived. yeah, And for whom he was a gardener, who apparently had absolutely no relationship to Chance. That, that mysterious past was somehow inhuman. Uh, this experience in the movie does change him to an extent, and it certainly changes the old man. And so with some of the other relationships in the movie, they suggest a a real desire for friendship. And friendship requires, in a certain kind, in a way, innocence. You have to be able to trust that somebody is not trying to exploit you. And Washington especially, but say Hollywood is the same, but really any company town, so to speak, or business town, will, will bring this out of people. You're always worried about the angles. How is it possible to have friendship on that basis? How is it possible to be trusting and to think that there is a common good share? That this is not simply a competition. It's not uh, your wins are my losses. You're seeing the American president, you know, desperately trying to have the CIA and the FBI find something out about this guy, chance the gardener, you have to get a grip on things. But once you see that that attempt to get a grip on things, to be in control of events, turn into this kind of desperation, turning into this kind of fear of manipulation at every step. You don't know what might come out. And if you don't know what might come out, you're exposed. But if you think that way, you can't really be human. There's too much fear. And I think that's also part of the point that, you know, it. a lot of the suffering, a lot of the misery that comes out of politics comes out of fear, comes out of insecurity, comes out of the fact that people know there are real risks. They know they are not in control and they react in a desperate way. Often our elites look very, very arrogant but what i would like to suggest that the movie gets absolutely right is that that arrogance is an illusion because we interpret the bad things they do moralistically they do it out of desperation not out of arrogance they do it out of fear out of insecurity they do it out of an attempt to keep a grasp on power because it it's they become aware how 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 it escapes them these are the actions of desperate people arrogance is largely a put on to be in the midst of uh, power in DC, you realize pretty quickly there aren't people in charge. Yes, it's just, and then so, and that's you know not a pleasant part of humanity, but it's very real, and all serious people should realize that it's a part of the seriousness of the satire is that it doesn't scapegoat these people. They are not the evil masterminds that we get to foil and uh, walk away with a victor. This is America. The people in charge are not particularly competent. It is not clear what can be done about it. A serious problem,
1: but do you think that he does at the end in the final scene suggest that there is a group um, that is in charge and 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 he layers it with this kind of Masonic conspiracy? You never see the faces of these men; you just hear them um, muttering and whispering. You know who's going to be our next uh, face? Uh, who 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 can we put up there that we can manipulate and keep the country together? And so I think Ashby suggests that that these people may be corrupt, they may be in some sense subverting the, the the illusion of democracy, but they are perhaps responsible in wielding power. They are perhaps wise to the ways of the world. They may perhaps, as the you know, all seeing eye suggests, uh, they may have a view from the top of the pyramid. And so it's a cynical interpretation, but I think that he does suggest to some extent that there may be a power behind the power, behind the grasping businessman, behind the insecure president, behind the uh, innocent uh, buffoon or foil. There is this cabal, which fills you with dread, but also actually uh, simultaneously lessens your anxiety. uh, Because you can say, oh, thank God, there's a group of responsible people that are running the show. And maybe that's, maybe there's irony there too, because one of the things that I've learned in politics, you know, the last couple of years, I've had a chance to meet very powerful people, you know, whether it's in, you know, business, uh, uh, finance, uh, high tech, uh, national politics, state politics, you know, have a chance to really uh, spend time with and meet, you know, some of the most powerful people on the right, at least in the, in the country. And I think I went into it a few years ago thinking, okay, I'm being let into the inner circle. Um, I'm going to these dinners with, you know, so-and-so pe- people who I will not necessarily name. And now I'm in, I'm going to understand they're letting me into this circle. They're going to uh, educate me in the way of how power works, how money works, how influence works, how politics works. And I remember going to one of these dinners and, and thinking, okay, all right, I'm in this, I'm in the, the, the circle behind the circle. They're going to explain to me how it, how it works. And then I'll figure out my place in this new world. And I went to this dinner and I sat down and and then they're like, then the the group was like, all right, Chris, explain to us how politics and power and everything works. You seem to be a kind of a kind of person who understands. And I I kind of was shocked. I said, well, I was expecting you guys to tell me uh, how it works. And you're expecting me to tell you how it works. And so I realized that however powerful you might be, and, and Ashby captures this same sense, there really isn't the, the the Masonic conspiracy, the power behind the power. It's all people who are seeking to understand. It's all people who have figured out their angle, whether it's money or whether it's electoral success or whether it's you know consultants or or policy, I mean, whatever it might be. But there's ultimately no one that has that all-seeing eyes view. Um, and that for me was was a revelation. And and while I was disoriented at, at, at first, I also I also understood okay you, I have just as good of a window into how things work as anyone else focus on that trust my own instinct uh, work as hard as I can to expand my understanding but ultimately we are all limited in how we understand politics we're all limited even in our power um, the people at the, the top of power can look down on an organization that they supposedly control like let's say the federal government from the Oval Office and have really no idea what's happening below them it is a uh, a profound lesson in the multidimensionality of power, and I think that maybe Ashby's film that comes out in 1979, the same year that that uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard's The Postmodern Condition was published, Lyotard is not wrong in how he and how he analyzes power. It's all of these intersecting and complex pluralities, language games, power games. No one can actually integrate them into a, a whole meta narrative, and I think Ashby captures that um, by, by chance. I'm sure he didn't read it. Obviously, the book was published prior. But I think that they're looking at the, the postmodern world in quite a similar way.
0: Yes, I think that is very true. That The 70s is the moment when people begin to look at the, the massive successes of uh, technological democracy, you know, commercial empire, it, it, the kind of politics and the kind of way of life that does make it possible for people to live long, healthy lives have a lot of freedom uh, to make their choices and still uh, defend themselves, including in world wars, that that world has a lot of achievements to its credit. But in the 70s, people come to realize that nobody's really in control when you don't quite understand what's happening. We thought we'd be going somewhere. We don't really know where we're going. It's a moment of grave doubt and of social, political, economic catastrophe, right? Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I would say that our doubts are much harsher now, but we don't have quite the same economic or social suffering or political trouble that we had in the 70s. So from a certain point of view, we, we're better off, but, uh, but from another, actually a lot worse. Because in, in 50 years, since the 70s, most of the major institutions that were then beginning to be put in doubt barely hang on. Uh, Now, you know, the the House uh, of Representatives is about to turn into a reality TV show where people run for office to be the next speaker (laughs) on Fox News. The caricature is astonishing. But the thing is, it could fit perfectly as a scene in being there. This could totally have happened.
1: Joe Biden is Chance the Gardener. You hear the words that come out of his mouth and you know that they're not being driven by his own uh, intelligence, by his own um, uh, uh, wisdom um, they're they're entirely delivered, of course, by the teleprompter, which begs the question, who is writing the words on the teleprompter? um and and Biden, I, I mean, very much, you can see in his career, he the only thing that he has that's a real talent is to decide which way is to understand which way the wind is blowing, and then to say the thing that will align him most closely with the wind. He's almost a character from the movie. and And you have this, a country of 330 million people and the best through the process of political deliberation. uh, We have chosen someone who is not in a physiological sense, but I think in a metaphysical sense, just as innocent as Chance the Gardener, not morally innocent, no, he's been corrupted, but as existentially innocent. I mean, he's the being there in the same way that the chance is being there. The way that, uh, that uh, Ashby shows the essence of being in the world, in the Heideggerian sense, of this human being who is barely dimly human, you, you see that with Biden. I mean, he is being in the world at the pinnacle of power, but, but his, his, his actual beingness is barely human in the sense of wisdom, in the sense of philosophy, in the sense of, of intentionality. And yet the country functions. That's the other thing. you know, everyone is figuring out how to get their peace. Um, it, it's total chaos in the house. It's chaos in business. No one knows what's happening. There's a cabal behind the, the kind of avatar figure, but that's not really uh, e- even that, that's not really what it claims to be either. And, and, and there is a, a non-entity in the, in the Oval Office. And yet America is still great. I mean, the, the country functions. People get up, they fill up their cars with gas this economy that almost, you know, runs, you know, by, by, by a a kind of invisible, the invisible hand, let's say. Um, And it's the, it's the chaos. It's the beauty of a highly technological democracy. Um, It's cynical, but it's also optimistic. I mean um, we, we, we were repeating the seventies. I mean, this, this is the, what I learned writing the book. It's like, if you understand the period between 1968 and 1979, if you really understand it historically you understand our moment today to a much greater degree than people who don't yeah i think uh, as i said underrated
0: it's uh, and i indeed it's, it's important to look at both sides of this that uh, on the one hand it's maddening to see such madness, but on the other hand, it's important to remember that people do move on with their lives, that there's a the great distinction between public and private life in America, although it's continuously undermined in a way by our screens that make us think we're everywhere, seeing everything, uh, it's still a real distinction. People uh, are, are maybe shocked by events, but it's also the case that probably most people in America don't care about what's happening in the House of Representatives. They just don't care, and uh, largely it's because their lives can go on without it. Yeah. Uh, it's and that's also important. It's, it's also partly why you know all of the people, a lot of people who shouldn't succeed in politics can succeed in politics, but on the other hand, can't do what they wanted. There's not that much power. People's private lives still, to a large extent, belong to themselves, or the fights over, like, to whom does your private life belong, that fight isn't really happening in the House of Representatives. It's uh, it's happening in other parts of America, and it's much more in people's own hands than it is in the hands of a few politicians or their minders. It's true that when you look at Joe Biden, you, you have this shock that uh, dude is obviously not compost mentis. You know, like the movie being there with all of these gerontocrat types, you see what was always known, so to speak, that age is second childhood, that old people begin to be children again. A very disturbing thing. Right? Nobody wants to look at his own father or grandfather that way, but it does happen to pretty much everybody. Old people lose their functions, lose their powers. They're still human, but they're just being there. Yeah. They can't do what they used to do. They don't say what they used to say. They don't notice, uh, and they certainly can't act. And uh, you know, it's shocking to see this on TV. It's clearly there's something crazy going on in the country with Joe Biden as president, uh, and and but we're all reassured at some level because we think he's not really the president,
1: yeah. which also makes it crazy. And what's amazing about Joe Biden is that you can't even really be angry at him, or project your frustrations and your rage onto him. Because there's nothing to hang it on to. He's a a human being that's almost without substance. And so it's, you know, people say, oh, we're mad about the Biden economy. It's like Republicans attack it in a traditional way to say, oh, it's the Bush economy. It's the Clinton. It's, you know, mad at Obama, mad at Trump. You can't be angry at Biden in the same way. It evaporates on contact. Um, but I, I have a question for you, as someone who follows cinema probably more closely than I do uh, in, in recent years. But are there any films in the contemporary period, in our current years, let's say the last ten years, in, that are political in nature that hold up to the great political and cynical, um, you know, satires and thrillers? You know, you're, the, those great Warren Beatty movies, Three Days of the Condor, or the Parallax View, or the Kind of paranoid films of that time that had political, real political themes. Has that disappeared, or am I just not paying close enough attention?
0: No, it's largely gone. Uh, both the um, political satires and the political paranoia things—they're—they're—they're uh, they're, they're largely gone. You know, Hollywood changed in the nineties and changed again in the twenty tens. But there's kind of continuity in this direction of turning around so much of public media in America into celebrity worship. And everything is PR. There's very little real press or criticism. There is very real. There's very little real artistry that might challenge public things because the real artists realize this is not acceptable in our times, and so you know you have to do something else. The only really good political satire was uh, "Burn After Reading." The coin Brothers. The coin Brothers. brothers yeah. The State Department, the CIA, the various. National security bureaucracies and their responsibilities. 2009 movie, so uh,
1: almost 15 years. And the Cohen brothers, again, they know being there. I mean, the Big Lebowski was was was, I think, self-consciously modeling that figure. But the Cohen brothers feel like they're out of time. I mean, it, it, in the sense that they do not feel of this time. They feel like the last filmmakers that could bring a sophisticated, you know you know, political or aesthetic sense to films that were still somewhat commercially viable. But if you look at the, let's say the indie film world, you would think they could make some smaller films with these themes. Being there was not an expensive movie to make, uh, besides maybe the paying the actors uh, who, who commanded a high rate. But is it that there is no market for it? Is it that there's no appetite for it? Is it that our film artists are too... Uh, wedded to kind of left-wing conventional wisdom that they can't see it. How would you describe uh, uh, why we don't see this big opportunity being filled?
0: Uh, Yeah, this is something that's been on my mind a lot since uh, we we share kind of conservative politics. But a love of cinema, you wonder, couldn't we do anything really? We can't? I can't believe that. I just can't. And so I've been wondering, why is it happening this way? And the best uh, I've got to say very briefly is that the audience is out there that's doable. Now and then some kind of movie becomes successful that's not supposed to. That proves the point again that actually there is a large American audience that would be interested. But primary audience isn't there anymore. You know, movies in a certain way are made. With a view to, like, you have to have a kind of beautiful vision of uh, America to motivate you and to think, okay, these are the people whose approval I want. These are the people who are my intended audience. And uh, Hollywood especially, you know, it, it is that world. Uh, to a large extent, Hollywood makes movies for Hollywood the world that the producers know, the world that the talent agents know, the world that say nothing of actors. I mean, actors are barely real people, right? They're, they're all being there, you know? But uh, there are a lot of intelligent people in Hollywood as well, just not usually actors. The, the, it's <laughs> uh, In that sense, it's also a weird combination of innocence and cynicism, of corruption and optimism. Uh, and the, the cleverer people are looking at the audience, you could say the audience of HBO at the audience of, you know, these newer streaming models that are small enough to be defined. Like, who who really watches Apple TV? Well, if you think about it, the cross-section of, uh, I suppose, largely women who are in the upper middle class, mostly white, middle-aged, that actually matters a lot in American society and American politics. It's small, but it's way influential. And so with a, a number of other things that are small enough to identify, but if you generalize, it's that... The world in which those people live does not include political satire. It includes only a kind of denunciation of ordinary America. And it's, as best I can tell, people in uh, liberal California don't really hate Red America. They don't really want, I don't know, Texas to suffer or Florida or whatever. What they think is the country is falling apart, primarily because it's falling behind. The problem with most Americans is that they're, they're living in a kind of fantasy of the old America, but these people get it because they're the new America, they're the economy that works, they're the industries that have success, and there's nothing left between them. It's And therefore, it's harder and harder to get from the primary audience, the people who make these kinds of things and the world they live in, to the great American audience out there, because there really aren't any connections. Like the only thing that connects liberal America to ordinary America is Taylor Swift. I don't think that's good. I don't think that's a great thing, you know? Uh and then so and then so, like you see in being there, people in power are always desperately interested in finding means of getting popularity. People yeah. who climb their way out of America into success do need at some level psychologically, not just politically, to think, uh, you know, and all of America is with me. And popularity proves that. I go on TV and they love me. TV was that's what TV was supposed to achieve for America, a popularity-making machine. You go on TV and now you're popular. Intellectuals, newspapers, as much as I don't know, all sorts of uh, celebrities and even freaks or reality TV. You go on TV, and now America loves you. Mm-hmm. TV is a popularity machine. It's the only democracy that exists in America anymore, and it failed. You know, it doesn't do that anymore. It, it turned into social well, media. Yeah. It turned into streaming. It turned into things that don't, on the one hand, there's there's very few artists left, or or very few artists who can get to achieve something, and on the other hand. The the massive distinction between the people who make the media, the people who tell America what America is, and the America who is being told, this has not been larger that I can think of, at least in modern media history.
1: Maybe what we have is there. There was that. I think it was maybe some kind of satire. I didn't watch it, but there was a movie about climate change that was on Netflix. It was some kind of haha satire to promote uh, climate change activism and. I mean, to me, that's like that's what you would get, but it falls flat because it's didactic, um, it's pat, it's cliche, it's it's um, not a, a, a satire either. without it's heart. Satire yeah. that isn't funny. Yeah. It's, it's also not very funny. funny. Very you know, funny. it's like it's like what happened with you know Trevor Noah. It's that kind of humor, humor where it's he's going for applause rather than laughs. Um, he only sees one side of it, so he can't actually create the absurd contradiction between what you're supposed to think and what you really think, because those for him are the same. Uh, What he really thinks is also what he's supposed to think. Uh, There's there's no gap. So we have that. But we also have TV, though, where I would disagree with you is that TV still rules. Um, uh, Look at what's happened to Tucker. When Tucker was on Fox, he was, uh, you know, in a certain sense, maybe even more than Trump while Trump was president. He was the the voice, the conscience, the narrative of the conservative movement, of the conservative political party, of the conservative part of the country. And now that he's on social media, I think his influence has has more or less vanished. He is doing uh, tabloid style interviews uh, to try to drive uh, clicks and engagement. But I don't get a sense that he is the opinion shaper. I get the sense that he is chasing a uh, kind of algorithmic success. And while I think that Tucker will eventually figure out that that's a dead end and he'll figure out something to do, I think the lesson is that ultimately the network in, in the same way as that great movie Network from the same time period, the network is still king. Television still rules. And perhaps we are in an era that is transitioning, that is changing. But I don't get the sense that Apple TV is setting the, the the common discourse at all. It's serving a niche. It's serving a you know the wine mom audience. It has a prestige economy. It wins some award that they give themselves. But 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 America, I mean, it's still Trump, Biden, and Murdoch. Uh, and even though Murdoch has stepped down, I mean, Murdoch still rules uh, in in that world. And so. I don't know what it means, but I think that there is perhaps room for some great artistry, some great satire, some great uh, comedy, and then something that 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 speaks uh, to a truth, you know, beyond the network, beyond the kind of insular world of Hollywood or D.C. or New York. I think there are still artists out there that can do it. You know, it's just a matter of, of if they will, if they can. And, and I hope to see something like that emergent. It's that, that is a real possibility because we are
0: at the shifting moment. The old public communications technologies are dying down, but they're not dead yet. The new public communications technologies are enormously successful, but it's not clear what they mean. You know, uh, social media is a lot more powerful than the other media, but it's also weirdly diffused and not, it, it, nobody knows exactly what to do with it. What is it for? How is it supposed to work? And you can see this that celebrities nowadays tend to come from social media not from tv like fox is never going to get another tucker and uh, i'm not sure there will be anybody else like tucker of that popularity or that influence that dangerous let's say you can't exactly say what he'll do next it's unpredictable to an extent to which most tv ain't uh you're not going to find that on any other tv channel either Uh, tv has a relationship left to influential people and if we're being honest about why it's the gerontocracy it's because old people are on tv and old people have a lot of money and property in america and their votes matter because as everybody knows 18 year olds don't vote 65 year olds vote a lot more but they also have a lot more wealth and they're and you know they are the older america that is still hanging on and it's in a way, it's crazy that these people want to die with their hands on power. Go home, see your grandkids. But in another way, they are what's keeping the country going. Right? Everything in that's America right. runs on old people. And of course, that's never been the case before, since people before didn't live this long, this healthy. We did not have this kind of medical technology 50 years ago, never mind uh, before that. But uh, you know, in that sense, a zombie like Biden is a miracle of modern technology. They're getting this, like, you say, okay, this is not working. The robot is malfunctioning. But no, the wonder is that it functions at all. (laughs) Yeah, it is. A lot of things. And and so with the influence, the dead hand of the past that ain't quite dead, and the past matters a lot more than we are going to acknowledge. You you can't sit techno lords down and read Faulkner to them to think that, you know, the past always catches up with you. There is something uh, in those things that you eventually remember and that define you. People don't have that kind of, so to speak, interest. People think the past is over, and it's not. And, uh, uh, and in that sense, I agree with you. TV still has an influence, uh, primarily because of its connection to respectability, prestige, and really old wealth. But uh, but everybody at the same time knows that social media is where the future is. And if you want a celebrity, it'll be there. It's much likelier to come out of YouTube than uh, out of TV. It's just that YouTube creates Mr. Beast. That's pathetic. That's right. So we we are in transitional period and people who think this might be your time. You might be right. This is the time to try things. You know, even Tucker might figure social media out better than somebody else and become a big success. These possibilities are real now. These transformations are real. And I think that's in a way a hopeful note to end our uh, not particularly hopeful discussion. Uh, Being there is a great satire, but it doesn't leave you hopeful. So maybe we are uh, ending on a
1: high note here. I think we are yeah and I think you're you know listening and you haven't watched the film it it it's something you need to watch and I think it it's even more interesting in the light of our, our our political and media changes they they saw something as it was forming that is now in kind of a middle age great to great to catch up with you
0: all right chris very good to, to talk again nice to talk uh, not strictly or not just politics uh, but you know it's political life is just in a way, charming, right? It's not, it can't make you happy exactly, but it is full of charm and interest and somehow seems important, serious. So I think it still has that power. It's one of the things that keeps me hopeful about America. All right, let's do this again another time, Chris, and all the best until then.